Alrighty, News Talk 1110 WBT, Pete Callender Show. It's uh, Tuesday, right? Yeah, Tuesday. It's 2 o'clock, and that means we speak with the Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore. How are you, sir? Doing great, Pete. It's good to be with you, sir. Hope you're well. I am well. I cannot complain. Um, so, I, I don't know. It's kind of been a bit of a roller coaster. Yesterday, I talked a good bit about the vaccine mandates, and then we because over the weekend, we had the stay from the federal court, but then it seems like the Biden administration is telling people be ready for this mandate anyway. So kind of let's, I guess let's go back to the initial mandate, which is he's, he's seems to be under the impression that he can tell OSHA to direct every single business in America that has more than a hundred employees that they have to do a vaccine mandate. So do you think he has the authority to do that? Uh, Absolutely not. This is probably the most obscene and largest overreach of of federal action or governmental action that I can that I can think of in in quite a while. I mean, we've seen how some of these governors and including our own who frankly went too far with so many things. uh, And we've seen where the federal government's done done a number of things. But this one is is uh, is interesting or or, or I'd say bad on, on even more levels. One the 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 president is he's not even going under the authority of a law passed by Congress. He's using the executive authority to essentially treat it with a force and effect of law, even though it hasn't gone through that process. So you have one that that abuse of the uh, of the process that's been used. But then number two, to for the federal government to try to reach down and 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 just micromanage uh, businesses at this level throughout the states. And then, of course, not only that, but to do it in such a way that it interferes in the personal liberties of people. I, I just, it's I, every, every day this guy in the White House, he just, it's, it's a race to see just how far big government and far to the left this guy can go. And, and of course, I'm trying to join in to the, to a lawsuit right now. There's a lawsuit that's filed in the, uh, in Georgia right now. And, and I've been seeking to intervene as a, as a party on behalf of the North Carolina House of Representatives, because I know that you know, the governor and the AG, of course, would be all too eager to to try to enforce this thing. Yeah, but uh, well, I, I think mean, they sent. Is, yeah, I think Stein sent a letter. The Attorney General Stein, I think he did send a letter of support or something for this uh, for the mandate. Yeah, I, I'm not not surprised at all. Not surprised at all that that they would do that, and that's been the indication. So. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you, it's sort of in line with uh, what they're wanting to do on this uh, uh, Leandro decision. I don't know if you guys have been talking about that. Oh, or, yeah. <laughs> but we've got a judge who apparently is poised to order that, you know, over a billion dollars be taking, taken from the state treasury and spent on some programs that some uh, consulting group out of California has uh, has uh, recommended. And to, to bypass the legislature, I'll tell you that one is not that is not going to go unanswered in a very significant way. I'll tell you that. So, and credit where it's due to WRAL, they went and tracked down the money on who paid for that West Ed consultant report, right? And it turns out, oh, look at that! It was the Cooper administration, largely along with a couple yeah. of uh, 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 of lefty nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Yep, and again, yet again, another collusive settlement, right? right. When the, uh, when they join in with the Mark Elias lawsuit uh, last year, so it seems so, like uh, it's this fits a pattern though. Uh, the collusive settlements is one aspect, one manifestation of it, but it's this sort of surrendering of authority 
at the legislative branch to what used to be, I thought, like a lot of times it was just surrendering it over to the executive branch. Like, let the executive agencies, you know, make up all these rules, rewrite rules and stuff. And at first, like, and I guess the founders assumed that each of the branches would guard their powers, right, against encroachment from the other. But it seems like in a lot of cases now, the especially at the federal level, Congress seems perfectly okay with allowing this encroachment from the executive and now the judicial branch. Well, I, can, I certainly can't speak for what's happening in Washington. A lot of bad things are happening in Washington. But I can tell you this, that as, as conservatives who believe in the Constitution uh, and Raleigh in the state legislature, we're going to fight this with every ounce we have because it's at the end of the day, it's not about the battle of the of, of government. I mean, the legislative branch is the closest branch to the people. And by that, what do I mean? You can get to your house member pretty easily, right? You see, you see the, at church, grocery store, school, et cetera. You know, you can't really get, get in and go see the, the governor. Uh, and you're not supposed to talk to judges about pending cases. So really, as far as for the power for the people, it's the legislative branch that's there. So what they're doing with this court being so active and doing this kind of thing is essentially just kind of thumbing their nose at, at, at what the people said. It's the same mentality. It's the same mentality of those who, where you have judges who say, yeah, we know the people have approved uh, voter ID, the Constitution, but, you know, but, but th- these judges, they, they know better than what the people. That, that's what they try to argue, and it's, and it's absolutely uh, absurd. And I'm going to tell you, we, we're going to fight this with every tool that we have, and we have a few tools in our toolbox to deal with it. So I noticed also some school districts are lifting their mask mandates, too, which was part of the uh, legislative uh, uh, the bill, right, that got passed into law that allowed the school boards to kind of go back and revisit this. And, and now I see that uh, they changed in Mecklenburg County, for example. They're going from a 30-day positivity rate to like a 5% or a, a 7-day positivity rate of 5%. So it seems like there's this general, I don't know, recognition that maybe things are getting a little bit better. And I don't know, maybe like that that safety valve for the school boards to be able to make their own decisions. Like maybe that was a good thing (laughs) for the legislature to have put in the bill. Well, and that's the thing we wanted, we wanted two things out of that one. We wanted accountability and transparency with what the school boards were doing, but ultimately we want the schools uh, to, to be responsive to the parents. The parents should know as much as they can about what's being taught to their kids, about the policies that are in place, and about those decisions, you know, those on the left think that uh, uh, that it, you know, they'll, they'll argue that it's better to let the schools kind of do their own thing, and the parents just sort of show up and be grateful. Well, that's not the way it is. The parents are have the have the moral uh, authority uh, over the over children. I'm a parent. A lot of us are, and we don't need government, whether it's a school or anybody else, to decide things uh, and not uh, and hide things. And so when it comes to the health of a child, I would submit to you that a, a child's parent is going to care more about the health of their child than any government institution. And so uh, I think this is good that this is happening. I think it's good that people are speaking up on this. And at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we keep kids in school, in person, uh, for learning. We need to make sure it's safe, but we don't need to be you know, allowing these, these you know, things to be forced on kids and forced on families. And we certainly don't need uh, folks to be able to hide behind the uh, uh, the truth of what's happening. And uh, real quick, where do we stand on the budget? You know, like it's almost Thanksgiving now. You guys, I'm not sure. I mean, it it is way. almost Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I have, I have a prediction for you. Okay. We will have a budget before Christmas. Before, 
That's not... <laughs> Listen, I'm running out of holidays, right? That's I got, right. I got, I got, I, I, I kind of got to have a have an over and under. Uh, actually, what I can tell you is this: we're getting very close. Um, things are looking promising that we should be able to get a budget next week. I, and I told you three weeks ago. I thought it'd be three weeks, three to four weeks. So I think. Uh, I think there might be a. I think Santa Claus might come early. You might have an early Christmas present. On the so the Medicaid expansion thing, I saw that got a lot of play because, like the Senate, I think there was a report that the Senate seems okay with expansion of it, but the House doesn't. Uh, but then I saw at the national level with the the infrastructure bill, is there something related to the Medicaid expansion that somehow takes this issue kind of off the table at the at the state level, or did I am I missing that? It, no, it's not in the infrastructure bill. There's a provision in the uh, reconciliation package. Ah, okay. Uh, that, uh, by the way, the only thing I can see is it's reconciling the nation to failures. All they're all they're reconciling out of that thing. Uh, <laughs> there you go. The rim shot. So, yeah, you like that one. Huh? <laughs> hey, no extra charge, right? But anyway, uh, that, that's what that I think. That's what that uh, bill has, and it says they basically a bypass of the states. In expanding this, and uh, all that's going to do is just raise taxes on everybody. Gotcha. Raising the cost. Okay. Yeah, because I thought I saw something where it could take the decision out of the state's hands, and so that that, uh, that would obviously do that. All right. Uh, well, hey, we always appreciate your time. Thanks so much for checking in with us. And uh, when uh, the session finally does end, you're welcome to hang out in studio with us for a longer format if you'd like. That and would be great. Looking yeah. forward to it. Absolutely. I Thanks for be- you too. That's the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore. And this is Boomer Von Cannon with Traffic. Hey, Newstalk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. I just came across this uh, this video. You got, you're going to have to hear this. I don't know who Morgan Ortegas is. I've never heard of her before, but she is a financial analyst and political advisor who served as spokesperson for the United States Department of State. From 2019 to 2021, I mean, that's all on me. I, I, I beg forgiveness. I had no idea, never seen her before, but I wasn't watching a whole lot of State Department press briefings. Anyway, she previously held several governmental positions, including Deputy Treasury Attaché and Intelligence Analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury and Public Affairs Officer at USAID. Okay, so she was in the Trump administration for two years. She apparently was one of the, I guess, fill-in... How many hosts do they have now on The View? There's like 14,000 of them, I think. And so she was sitting at this really, really large table because you have to accommodate all the hosts. They had, as the guest on the show today, I guess, or the taping of it or whatever, Adam Schiff. And list... Okay, we'll just listen. So I want to ask you about something that's in the news a lot right now. Um, You've been really prolific over the past few years being the head of the Intel Committee, and you defended, promoted, you even read into the congressional record the Steele dossier. Um, And we know last week the main source of the dossier was indicted by the FBI for lying about most of the key claims in that dossier. Do you have any reflections on your role in promoting this to the American people? Well, first of all, whoever lied to the FBI or lied to Christopher Steele should be prosecuted, uh, and they are. Uh, and unlike in the Trump administration, if they're convicted, they should go to jail, not be pardoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Donald Trump pardoned Roger Stone for lying. He pardoned Michael Flynn for lying. Uh, if people lied to the FBI, they should go to jail. Um, 
But at the beginning of the Russian investigation, I said that any allegations should be investigated. We couldn't have known, for example, people were lying to Christopher Steele. So actually, not true, Congressman. Not true. The FBI knew that Denchenko was lying and that all of that P tape stuff, the Steele dossier, was built on a foundation of lies. They knew that from the very beginning. They knew that he had lied, Denchenko had lied. They knew that that had informed the Steele dossier, and they still went forward with the FISA court applications and still re-upped them to keep the wiretaps going. So, no, they they actually they actually they actually did not do this thing that you're saying. They they knew that there was lying involved, and they allowed it. They overlooked it. It wasn't until we got John Durham in there to do the special prosecution. That's it. So. Schiff, I know this is going to come as a surprise, not exactly being honest in the answer. But hang on, there's more here. It was proper to investigate them. And let's not forget what we learned in that investigation. Okay. We learned that the Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was giving internal polling data, campaign polling data, to Russian intelligence while Russian intelligence was helping the Trump campaign. And to be clear, he was fired halfway through the campaign. Well, he may have been fired, but the the effort to get Russian help continued, and even beyond the effort to get Russian help, the president also sought to get... But you may have spread Russian disinformation yourself for years by promoting this. I think that's what Republicans and what people who entrusted you as the Intel Committee Chair are so confused about your culpability in all of this. Well, I, I completely disagree with your premise. Uh, it's one thing to say allegations should be investigated, and they were. Mm-hmm. It's another to say that we should have foreseen in advance that some people were lying to Christopher Steele, which is impossible, of course, to do. They but, knew. But let's not use that as a smokescreen to somehow shield Donald Trump's culpability for inviting Russia to help him in the election, which they did, for trying to coerce Ukraine into helping him in the next election, mm. which he did, uh, into inciting an insurrection, uh, insurrection which he did. Wait, what? Um, none of that is undercut. None of that serious misconduct is in any way diminished by the fact that people lied to Christopher Steele. No, I think just your credibility is. No. Oh, my goodness. Oh, ow. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. All righty, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. You've heard us talking about the 704 Coat Drive presented by Charlotte Mechanical. Want to welcome to the program Bill Latavola. He's the general manager at Charlotte Mechanical. Bill, how are you? Welcome. Hey, great, Pete. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going. You know, it's uh, it's Tuesday, so we're almost halfway through the week. Yep, but yep. Uh, <laughs> Not that I'm counting. But So first off, uh, I usually do this for people when I have them on about their organizations or businesses. Uh, what is Charlotte Mechanical? What do you guys do? Give us sort of the, uh, the elevator pitch. So Charlotte Mechanical is a plumbing and HVAC multifamily contractor, uh, probably one of the largest in the southeast, which multifamily, for those that don't really know, is the apartment world. Um, that's, that's what we do day in and day out. That's our, that's our business. And then we do have a service group, which services you know residential homes and whatnot. Okay, so uh, so is it two separate lines of business? Then you got one that focuses on multifamily and one on the resident uh, on single family. Yeah, correct. And on okay. the multifamily side, we it is all new construction, and then on the residential, ah. it is 
service work, no new construction on the residential side. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I guess business must be uh, booming <laughs> right now. I just, business is good. <laughs> I see there's, there's apartment buildings going up everywhere. So, uh, yeah, that's good for you guys. So, uh, you guys, uh, you're, you're partnered with us for the 704 Code Drive, among many other uh, entities, and this is all uh, to help the Salvation Army. So, uh, first, tell us, how did the company get involved with this project? How long have you guys been doing it? So the owners here started this about 11 years ago. Uh, so this is our 11th annual coat drive. It was just, you know, they saw a need and, and you know, found a way that they can help. And, you know, so we start in September, and then we're this year all the way through. Uh, this coming Friday, we'll wrap up our, our official coat drive um, at the Dilworth Neighborhood Grill. Um, this Friday, but, you know, we'll continue to collect coats all throughout the rest of the year. And, you know, all the coats and all the monetary donations and everything go directly to the Salvation Army and not into their stores, but directly from us to the Salvation Army to the folks who need them. That was one of the things I saw. Whenever I donate money to charity, Salvation Army is one of them, but uh, I I was impressed that 100% of the coats and the money goes to the local Salvation Army. It's one of the things I always look for when you make donations. You ask the the nonprofit, like, how much goes to, like, administrative costs, how much is going to programs and services, right. because that's really important. I mean, we've all heard those stories, right, where, like, oh, the yeah. nonprofit charity, and they take, you know, like, 90 cents of every dollar, and they use it for fundraising or something. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, this is, this is a great group, and, and we've been partnered with them for the last couple of years. And, again, it goes from our hands to their hands right to the folks who need them um you know and it's it's really cool it's um you know something that the owners here you know are it's really near and dear to them and then you know it kind of rolls over to the company here and uh yeah it's it's really good cause and like i said it's you know this friday will be kind of our what we call our zip up day um just kind of take over the parking lot there at the uh, dilworth neighborhood grill and we've got, you know, a lot of the sports mascots will be down there. We've got Stilt Walker. We've got DJ down there all day. we got some free food down there, um, photo booth. Um, so just a lot of fun stuff. Also, there's a drive-through uh, donation uh, method that you guys are going to use, too, which is going to be pretty helpful as well. So if you can't hang around for all of that stuff, right, people can just kind of swing on by and make the donations. That's right. They don't even have to get out of the car. They want to open their their back door or pop their trunk or or whatever the case may be. We can grab the coats and, and, you know, no contact, no anything. They can just drive on through. Yeah. Um, And so this is on Friday from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. It's at the Dilworth Neighborhood Grill. You can go to the website 704coatdrive.com. So what is the goal that you guys are aiming for? How many coats? I guess I should ask how many coats do you generally get? During this, uh, these these annual drives, and is, uh, I'm assuming you're trying to get more coats than you did last year. Yeah, so last year I think we were uh, over 3,000. Um, this year, of course, you know we've got a pretty high goal at 6,000, and you know we'll we'll continue to push and and you know get as many as we can, um, even if it doesn't meet the goal. It, it's you know it still uh, puts a lot of coats out there in the hands of the folks that need them. Uh, do you find a lot of donations of coats of the sports teams that people thought would be good and then turned out not to be good? And then we, <laughs> like... You know, we, every year we see it. Um, in counting coats last week, there there's a few, there's quite a few uh, sports teams in there. And, and, you know, 
a lot of folks bring in clothes as well. So there was a, a lot of sports T-shirts in the in the boxes and bags this year. Right. I, there's always the fun story after like the World Series or the Super Bowl where whatever team loses, they end up shipping all of the the merchandise to you know third world countries. So they're like running around with all these you know Houston Astros World Series that's right. yeah, T-shirts. Yeah. We haven't seen that yet, but yeah, that's uh, yeah, I'm sure it happens. I, and, and I guess you guys would sort of be on the front line of the changing coat fashion as well, wouldn't you? You would see what people are ditching. Um, right. And so you would be able to, I mean, maybe get into the fashion world, maybe do like projections on, right, right. on, on what's well, coming. Know, it's pretty unique. You know, we get a, a lot of uh, the gently used coats. But honestly, we get a lot of new coats as well. I think we had five or six boxes here that we opened up last week, and they were Brand new coats still in the bags. Oh wow! Um, you know, it almost looked like they shipped direct from you know one of the online retail stores. Um, so that that's really cool to see too. A lot of kids' coats this year already. Yeah. So this is a really good way, by the way, for uh, if you are a business, a company, you're looking to do something for uh, dare I call it a team building exercise or something, but you want to uh, help out a local organization, make a direct impact in the community. It's a good idea. Get everybody together in the office and get a. Uh, get a bunch of coats together and drop them off on Fridays at the Dilworth Neighborhood Grill. Uh, the, you got the barrels still all over town, right? So people can still make those donations at the barrels. Well, that's correct. There's there's over 50 barrel partners out there, and if you know if you go to the website 704coatdrive.com, you can check out all the locations. If there's not one close to you, we can certainly arrange a pickup. Bill Latavoli is the general manager at Charlotte Mechanical. Um, and is there anything else on this you want to add you think is important for folks to know that we haven't already covered? Man, y'all get out there and donate some coats. Come and see us Friday. Sounds good. 704coatdrive.com. And uh, you can also make a monetary donation there to benefit the local Salvation Army. Bill, thanks so much. Thanks for your, uh, for your uh, work on this, too. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Pete. We appreciate your time. All right. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got an email here from Dean who says, Pete, how have you gotten through the day without discussing at length the Hidden Valley political power grab? All right, in a different story. No, I'm kidding. Um, Because I ran out of time in hour number two, and I knew I had the two interviews in hour number three, and so, Dean, I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to touch the... Hidden Valley and City Council redistricting topic, not in depth. Um, I'll save it for tomorrow. So that's what I'm going to do tomorrow. Um, and if you heard me this morning on Bo Thompson's show, um, I kind of laid out the argument for why. Uh, so there's two components here you've got in the Charlotte City Council redistricting uh, process. There are two different elements. Number one is this uh, uh, Hidden Valley issue, which is how dare you move precincts out of the Hidden Valley uh, area? They're they're not moving the precincts. They're just putting them into a different city council district, right? They're just redrawing a line. So now they'll be in district five, right? Or whatever it is. I forget because I get confused with the county commission districts because they just moved one or two precincts as well. And so there's all of these rumors and accusations that there's some sort of like politics afoot. The irony here is that like you're actually more empowered. You actually have more power now 
Hidden Valley. You guys have more power. And it's also kind of offensive. There's a bit of an offensive argument at the core here, too, which is that a white Democrat cannot possibly represent the one or two precincts from Hidden Valley that are getting moved, right? Because they're black, don't you see? And so while they get to be a community of similar interest, white people do not. And they are explicit in this argument. They make this argument, and it's the same argument that was at the county when they were doing their redistricting maps, too. That there is no possible way that white people, Democrats, could represent black people, also Democrats. And that the white folks in a particular uh, district or precinct are not a community of similar interest, but black people are, you see. Because black people, I guess, have a culture and white people, I guess, do not have a culture. Unless, of course, you're trying to define whiteness in order to advance critical race theory. See, this is the problem with a lot of this progressive moon battery is that it is uh, self-contradictory in so many different ways. So that's one element, the Hidden Valley side of it. Then the other element, of course, uh, is the uh, proposal from City Councilman Braxton Winston. And that's what I spoke with Bo Thompson uh, and Beth Troutman this morning about uh, specifically because it is clear when you look at cities that have district-only representation versus an at-large representation model the districts focus more on core services, right? Because the district representatives represent fewer people. They are more, uh, they are closer to their constituents and they are living in the area. So they have firsthand experience with the potholes, with the crime, you know, with the streetlights being out with the sidewalk needs, right? They have direct uh, access to the issues and the people uh, that they represent. So, The at-large model, generally speaking, um, in fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, pointed this out, too, so this is hardly a right-wing idea, but the at-large model is useful to suppress minority representation. That's And the district model helps to ensure minority representation. So, and in the case of Charlotte, this is sort of the the irony here, is that in the case of Charlotte... uh, that minority representation might actually look a little bit like white Republicans. And that's why Democrats don't want to go to a district model. And there are a lot of people that, you know, have this idea like, oh, well, the at-large people will, you know, they'll, they'll think of the good of the city as a whole. And look, there are pros and cons to all models, no doubt about it. Um, But I don't believe that somebody at the at-large level, at a citywide level, somehow has a better view or vantage point on what is best for the entire city versus a district rep. I, I, I just, I don't, I just don't. Um, I think a lot of times that the, the at-large uh, uh, representatives, I think they may actually have a bit of a different constituency. I think because they run at large, they're going to be far more, uh, responsive, let's say, to more more moneyed special interests, that kind of thing. But uh, you know, hey, look, I mean, we're the city is growing, and at some point, this model is going to change because it has to. Because you can't 
you cannot keep electing. I don't think you can keep electing four people at large in a city that then grows to a million people. You're going to tell me like one person, like you got four at large members. And that's the other thing too. Like Claire Fallon, the former city councilwoman, she was a, a at large representative and she was in support of the at large uh, model. And, uh, and I like Claire. I've, I've known Claire Fallon for years. I respect her. I disagree with her on, on, on this count though. Cause she said like a lot of the at large members had to pick up the slack for the, for the district members. And I totally believe that, by the way. I totally believe that. You are always going to have people who run for office, get into office, and then don't do anything, right? Um, They're not responsive to their constituents. To me, though, the answer there is to let them fail, right? To let them fall on their own. When their constituents realize that they are terrible on constituent services and getting stuff done, then you can oust them. The answer is not to have the at-large people come in and backstop them and do the work for them. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that there's nothing that guarantees those at-large people aren't going to be lazy, too. And if they're not going to go in and backstop those lazy district reps, then you end up with, now what? A somebody, you got people in a district that are not being well-represented by their district rep, but they're also not being well-represented by their four at-large reps either. Getting something on the radar of the at-large reps is going to be harder, especially if those at-large people don't require your votes because they're picking them up from other areas of town. So to me, there's just a lot of problems with the the at-large seats, especially also as you get uh, higher population growth. When you got more people in the city, you're going to have a harder time representing that number and if you get to a point where you got, what, four at-large members, and so they're representing a city of a million people, I mean, that's bigger than a congressional district. Do you, I mean, how well do you think your member of Congress represents everybody in the district, right? The idea is for government that's closer to the people, and that is a district model. And um, I think, you know, Braxton Winston, the councilman who made this pitch last night at the city council. He was supported in it by Tark Bakari as well, Republican. Um, I, I, I'm not wedded to the idea of there being 11 seats on the council. I mean, you can go, because uh, I think he said 11 districts, and then you elect a, a mayor and a mayor pro tem at large. I don't need even to do that. I would just say 10 districts makes the math easy. You just divide it by 10. That's how big the district is. You have 10 districts, and... You have a mayor at large, and that's it. And that's your 11-member body. Or you go to uh, 11 districts with a mayor. Like There are ways to work that math. I mean, you can reduce it down to 9. You can push it to 13. Whatever. Darn it. Now I went and talked about it in depth. All right. We'll talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.